I've seen a lot of people who have a passion try to start a business and it not go well because they focus too much on the part of it they're passionate about and not the business part. So that would be my advice is just be prepared to to have to be a business person if you want to start a business. This is Pittsburgh, a place where a rich heritage of making things and a fierce independent nature come together to create a thriving entrepreneurial community. Whether you're a small business owner looking for ideas or inspiration, or you're an enthusiastic supporter of local businesses, you'll find it here. I'm your host, Darren Volano, and this is the Proprietors of Pittsburgh podcast. Today, my guest is Russell Michelson. He's the owner of Paperbox SEO and the founder of Free Pittsburgh Walking Tours. Russell, thank you so much for being on the show today. Appreciate you being on. Thank you for having me. So you have two businesses here that we're going to talk about. Let's first talk about Free Pittsburgh Walking Tours. How did you get the idea for this business and how did you get it started? Tell us a little bit about it. So I was traveling the world with my then girlfriend for a couple years in 2016 to 2018 and we were working online. We were taking a lot of walking tours around the world and the ones I liked the most were the ones that were name your own price. And that's when the tour guide, at the end of the tour, they say, pay me whatever you want. It could be nothing. It could be $20 a person. And so they would try harder on the tour, the tour guides. And it would be a better tour because if they do a better job, they make more money. And so I love taking these tours. I love showing people around myself. I love history. And so when my girlfriend got into Pitt, uh, into the master's program... I said, I want to start a walking tour company there. And luckily, there was only one other walking tour company here. And they were doing the traditional concept, which is like $20 a person flat fee, no matter what. So I thought I could be a little bit different and people might be into it. So two weeks after moving here, I had already read all the books on Pittsburgh, done all the research, even though I'd never stepped foot in Pittsburgh, except for one short trip. I, I created the website. I worked on the business model. So two weeks after we moved here, I gave the first tour. That's great. And tell us a little bit about how the name your own price model works for people that are less familiar with it. So you told us a little bit, but can you tell us how it worked for you when you actually started to execute this model and people were showing up and they were naming their own price? What were people paying on average? How was it working out for you and your tour guides that you hired? I think you were also a tour guide initially. You're like the main person. So can you tell us a little bit about that? And then also, it sounds like you had a love for history and the city and you're not from here. So this was a, a way for you to learn more about Pittsburgh in our region. And I'm just curious what some of the things that you learned about Pittsburgh, what were some of the things that stood out to you? Yeah. So uh, the model of pay your own or name your own price is more popular in Europe. So a lot of Europeans ended up taking the tour and Americans got it and they liked it. But I had to put it on the site in like bold letters, like what this means. Pay whatever you want at the end of the tour. It's fairly simple, but it's just unfamiliar to a lot of people. So people took the tour and on average, they would give $12 a person. Um, it would be a little less for children. And it was 
a big range of, of payments per person. Like some people would give $5 a person. Some people would give 20 or more dollars a person. But on average, it was around 12, which was good. And the tour guides that I eventually ended up hiring, they made good money. The hours were a little inconsistent in the beginning because sometimes people don't show up to the tour. But I made sure that they always walked away with a good amount of money, even if it came out of my pocket. And as far as your other question, so I'm from Northern Virginia, which is a suburb of DC. And it's in many spots, very bland. There's not a lot of history. There's not a lot of culture. So the first place I ever lived in the US that had any sort of identity and history was Pittsburgh. And every day I was just enthralled, just walking around the city, like looking at these old buildings, thinking about all the interesting things that happened and how every neighborhood is different and how Pittsburgh used to be one of the biggest, most important cities in America. And its influence was seen around the world. And all the cool people that lived here, like Carnegie and Frick and, and Hines and Rachel Carson and Roberto Clemente and like just the list goes on and on. So I was and still am very into Pittsburgh. The city itself is a hobby of mine. I love the city. And it's sort of in the same way that a, a visitor loves the city because I'm new to it. I've been here for three years now, uh, but I still feel new to it. And so I'm always discovering new things. And I think that came off on the tour. Like people realized that, that I was passionate about it and they could feel it because it's hard to fake that, especially me. I can't fake passion. <laughs> and so I would give these tours and, and people would, I think, um, would enjoy them because I tried to make them entertaining. That was, I think, what separated my tours from a lot of other walking tours that are history oriented because it's easy to become very dry and lost in the the facts and figures of history. Like in this year, this happened and this person did that thing. You have to make it appealing to, to everyone. And so the tour had some history. It had some architecture. It had stuff about modern Pittsburgh. It had geography. It had everything. And it wasn't too long. It was only 90 minutes. And uh, because that's long enough to, to give you your fill of Pittsburgh. But after 90 minutes, I think people start to, to wonder when it's going to be over. Yeah, it sounds like you really were able to learn a lot about Pittsburgh and our region and be able to fall in love with it through the act of doing the tour. So that's great. But then in 2020, the pandemic happened and that was a, a big event. It had a, a huge negative effect on your business. Can you tell us what it was like in 2020 for you? What were you going through? And how did that ultimately lead up to you selling the business this summer in 2021? So I had a skill that helped me create this business. And that skill was SEO, which is search engine optimization, uh, which is basically showing up high on Google. And I actually had another company where we just did SEO. And so I used those skills to get free Pittsburgh walking tours to basically the number one spot for everything. Uh, all the keywords, walking tour Pittsburgh, even tours in Pittsburgh for a while, uh, Pittsburgh tour, all of them. And when I got to number one, uh, that was the beginning of 2020, right before I was going to open back up for the 2020 season. So I was very excited to have the best summer ever. 
And this was going to be about as much money as the company could ever make, I thought, because we had a bunch of good reviews at that point. And uh, our visibility was at 100% as far as I was concerned. So when the pandemic happened, it was very disappointing, obviously. But I thought, oh, okay, well, maybe we'll get part of the summer. Obviously, that didn't end up happening. And by the end of the season, by the end of 2020, I realized I've kind of lost interest in it. As, as bad as that sounds, my other company was doing really well. And I hadn't really thought about the tour company in a long time because I didn't need to. It was, I wasn't making any money from it. I was focused on just establishing ourselves. I wasn't worried about profitability. So I didn't have to worry about the money. And I was in quarantine. I just wasn't in the mindset of giving tours. And I just sort of lost the momentum. And so I started to look for buyers. And I, it was a little bit difficult to, to find buyers because I didn't have a year of financials that show that it's, it's a great company. It makes a lot of money. At best, it was breaking even. So a lot of people turned me down. And eventually, I was able to find a couple uh, in Pittsburgh who were looking to uh, have some more financial independence and own you know, their own job. And they like giving tours to people. And so I sold it to them. They couldn't afford to buy it for the price I wanted to sell it for. But I was you know, happy to just sell it to them and, and break even. So I, I, I pretty much didn't lose money. I didn't make money on this whole experience, but I, I learned a lot. But you learned a lot from it, right? I did. Yeah. yeah and that's, that's, that's valuable in its own way. That's great. Although you can't buy anything with, with knowledge. <laughs> Now, your other company is Paperbox SEO. And you started around 2015, I believe, and you, you referenced that a few minutes ago. And you talked about what SEO stands for, which is search engine optimization. You talked a little bit about what that means, which is getting high in the rankings, specifically on Google. Can you tell us a little bit more about the services that you provide in this business and maybe some examples of the types of companies that you would work with? Who are your clients in this business? So we work with small to medium-sized businesses. Half of our clients are online companies. Maybe they're an e-commerce shop. Uh, you know, We have one that sells food online. We have one that sells epoxy online. And then our, the other half of our customers are uh, local businesses, lawyers, roofers, what have you. Anyone who finds their customers from search engines. That's who our customers are. And we work with them long-term. We've been working with some of our clients for years. If we're doing a good job, they'll stay on for, for several months or, or, or years. And basically, we just figure out what their customers are searching for on Google. And we get them as high, ranking as high as possible to get them more clicks and, and calls and ultimately more revenue. So your business is ultra focused on one thing, which is SEO. And that's, you don't, you're not doing a bunch of other services. The services that you provide are, are just all based around that, correct? That is correct. SEO is very, very difficult. And even most people who do it professionally, I would say, aren't good at it. It's just really hard because search engines are constantly updating their algorithms and how they rank websites because... They don't want people figuring out how to trick the algorithm. And that's what 
our job is, is just tricking their algorithm into ranking people higher. So it's just a constant game of cat and mouse. And Google wants to make sure only the most deserving uh, cats catch the mouse. I was going to ask you about that because SEO always seems like a black box. You know, you know, it's these companies like Google, they create the algorithms. Like you said, it's, they don't let anybody know what it is. What's, what are the key factors that drive, in this case, search engine rankings, right? There's an algorithm is essentially a set of instructions to create some sort of result. And, and it's, it's sort of calculating through these, it's ranking importance on different things and it's changing. So how does a company like yours, how do you know when you nailed it and you figured out the latest change? Is it a trial and error type of thing that you're doing? That's one of the things I always wonder with companies like yours is how do you know you're figuring it out and how do you know even when they change it? I'm assuming maybe they do release some information, but I would imagine in some cases, they maybe they don't talk about all the changes that they're making unless they want the public to know that, okay, now this particular thing is important. And so, you know, they're sort of signaling to the market that something is changing and something's going to be now important to, so that people do more of that activity. But how do you know that you're figuring it out? So Google does release information on what they say works and doesn't work, although it's not always truthful. Uh, Like they said, how many times you update your website has no effect on your SEO. But they would, if imagine if they said it does have an effect, then you would just have an entire industry pop up of like bots updating your website a thousand times a day. So that's an example of why they can't always be truthful. So you can listen to them, but really the way you learn how to do SEO is to listen to people who have cracked the code. There's a lot of basic information out on the internet that you can find, like articles, like stuff by people like Neil Patel on on Moz's blog, like popular SEO sites. And you can learn the basics. But if you want to be really effective at SEO, you have to sort of dig deeper and, and, and test things yourself. And that's what I did. I struggled for years just trying to figure out what works. And it took me three years, I would say, before I became good at SEO. And the way you can measure success in most cases is quite simple. It's just like, your keyword rankings. Um, what, are the, what are the results, in other words? Yeah, yeah. Like if you were on the third page of Google for this keyword, now you're on the first page, you know, that's success. How many clicks you're getting, what those people are searching for when they click on your site. Uh, you want to make sure that it's like something relevant. So yeah, there's a lot of, there's a lot of, Google does provide a lot of free tools where you can measure, you know, success. And they have to be careful, like you said, what they're putting out to the public because whole industries could sprout up attacking a particular metric if they deem it to be the important thing. So they have to be careful what they say, as you had just mentioned. Can you talk a little bit more about your selection of SEO as a profession and a company to start? I I understand it's a little bit of an evolution. You were working in marketing, you were working in communications for a large corporation. You decided to make a change, you know, learn about something yourself and, and learn more about what you could do if you were to start a business. And I think you dabbled in you know, website, maybe website creation, online advertising, before you gravitated to SEO specifically, what was it that drew you to SEO? And you said, you know, yeah, this is the thing I really want to focus on if I build my firm. So when I graduated college in 2014, I did work for a large corporation in the communications department for a year. And I didn't like that. So I quit and I tried to become a musician for a year 
And that didn't work out as it usually doesn't. And so I had to support myself. I didn't want to go back to a corporation. I wanted to do my own thing. And the only skill I had was making uh, mediocre WordPress websites. And so I called on my personal network. I was like, hey, friend, do you have like a parent? I, I, or I saw your parent owns a business. Do they need a new website? And so I did a couple of websites. I got a portfolio. And then this is when I started traveling the world to cut my living expenses because a lot of other countries are cheaper. And so I uh, started making websites for whoever would hire me. I would find them online. Luckily, I connected with someone um, just by chance who sent me a lot of business. But I realized web design was not for me. I don't have an eye for design. I didn't like how involved the, the clients would get. They would do like a thousand revisions. And, and it's also just a one-time project and then you have to find a new one. So I wanted something that would allow me to, to make recurring revenue. And I have a degree in communication and I'm better at that. So I said, I, I'm just going to do online marketing. And so I taught myself everything how to do pay-per-click marketing, SEO, conversion rate optimization. I still made some websites, just any way, uh, Facebook ads, you know, everything. And uh, I was doing better, but I realized I needed to focus on one thing and get good at it because it's, it's hard when you're not like an expert to get results consistently. And so that's when I slowly over the course of like six months, just pivoted away from everything except for SEO. And I started out doing SEO as a freelancer. And eventually my schedule filled up so much that I hired someone that I found online on indeed.com. His name was Andrew. And as things grew, I needed more help. And I was thinking of making him a full-time employee, even though that would cut, take a lot of my money away, but I needed the help. And uh, at the same time, he came to me and said, hey, I need to quit soon because I need more money and you're not paying me enough. And so I said, okay, I'll make you a full-time employee. And from there, you know, things just, just grew. And now I have three full-time employees and five part-time employees. Yeah, that was very self-aware of you to figure out what you would be good at when you were trying to decide because, you know, you could have forced yourself to do web design. You know, a lot of people do that it's an easy place to get started. But if you know that you don't have as much of an eye for design or that's not the best place to get started, then it is probably better that you focus on something else. And if you're good with, you know, sort of the analytical aspect of SEO, that seems like a great choice that you made in uh, doing that. So that was, that's really uh, cool to hear that, especially for somebody listening that is trying to figure out what, what they should choose or what they're good at. You know, I think being self-aware, really knowing where your strengths are is, is an important part of this process. And we talked about that big company that you worked for and then the transition to your own company. Can you talk a little bit more about that time of your life? So you were working for this company. You were probably making a salary, comfortable job. You didn't like it, as you had said, but you know it was uh, stable. And here you're going to now do something totally new. It's your own business. There's a little bit more risk in, involved with entrepreneurship, especially in the beginning, because you got to get those first clients. You got to get people to sign on and believe in you and, and get that revenue coming in so you can cover the bills. How did you make that transition? And especially for somebody listening to this, that maybe they're in a corporate job right now and they want to transition and they're, they're trying to think, you know, how much runway do I need? You know, I'm wondering uh, how much runway did you gave yourself and did you have to do any 
odd jobs just, you know, at, during that transition process to sort of stay afloat as you, as you made the change? Yeah. So I was making a decent salary uh, working at that job, but I just realized it wasn't worth my sanity. I was, I was very unhappy. And I think I realized that most jobs aren't going to pay you like a ton of money unless you're, I don't know, an engineer at, at Apple or something, which I was never going to be. And so I wanted to, to make a, a lot of money. So I said, I need, to, I need to figure something out and be 100% in control. I'm also a control freak. And I don't like taking orders from people who I think don't know what they're doing. And, so, and you can't avoid that in corporate America. And so it was a no-brainer. Like I, I wasn't going to stay. And the risk was lower for me because I had savings from that job. And actually savings from my bar mitzvah, uh, I don't know, 10 years earlier. And I knew like, you know, if worst comes to worst, I run out of money, I can always move back with my parents. So I was very privileged in that sense. And so I, when I became a musician and quit, I worked at Pizza Hut um, as a delivery driver for a month. And it was actually harder than my corporate job. Just learning the processes were hard and... and um, I wasn't into it, obviously. You know, it, it wasn't my passion. Um, and my girlfriend didn't like that I smelled like pizza 24-7. <laughs> and so I, I, I quit that. Or I didn't quit. They just closed down for renovations and then they never called me when they opened back up. <laughs> and uh, I just lived off savings. And, and then I ran out of money. And I, yeah, it, I definitely hustled. I, I was on 24-7 after starting the web design business. And I just, I just never stopped. And you know, my mental health did suffer for it, but but I was able to make enough money to to live that year, just by sheer force of will. Now I understand at that time during this transition, you were also contemplating or working on being a musician as well. And you know, you you didn't end up going in that direction, of course, you know, you're, you're running your company now. Could you tell us just a little bit about that particular time too? What were you doing in music and what was that experience like? So I, I was in a college band from like 2011 to 2014. And we were fairly popular in like our college town. Uh, but we wanted to, you know, make it. We wanted to become famous musicians. And after we graduated, a lot of us got nine to five jobs. And we were like, oh, this sucks. We want to be rock stars. And so we moved into a house together back in our college town. And that's when progress stalled. Ironically, we just stopped progressing. And there were some internal conflicts between me and, and some other members of the band, you know, just drama. You know, there's six people in the band. So there's, there's a lot of people. And there's always going to be personality clashes, especially with me. I'm, I'm, I have a strong personality. Let's just put it that way. And so I just wasn't enjoying it anymore. And I was actively losing money. And I think I, I realized one day, like, even if we made it, I wouldn't have been happy. Like, even if we were playing like big venues and making enough money to live. So, so that's when I, I realized I needed to do something else. So with Paperbox SEO, you're running a virtual firm. And I believe you've been doing that pretty much since the beginning. You, you referenced that a little, a little bit ago when you talked about the first hire that you made. And, you know, it's not unusual for companies that are in the tech space or online companies to have virtual teams, you know, to have teams with people all over the country, maybe even all over the world. And you were doing that, like I said, before the pandemic. 
what are some of the advantages to running a virtual team? I'm wondering, you know, what are some of the the strengths of doing that, especially if somebody's listening and they want to start a business and go that route? And then also, how did you build the team that way? Because in some cases, you probably didn't meet the person that you were hiring in person. You know, maybe you're just doing video chat or or some other way of, of talking to them. And that, that can pose its own challenges in terms of hiring. I would say there are two benefits to having a remote company. One is you can access a talent pool across the whole globe instead of just in your city. And two is as the owner, you can save money on office space, which these are two very obvious things. But I just looked at, you know, how much it would cost to to lease an office and pay for the equipment and, and stock the office with things and pay for cleaning service and utilities and parking. And it was just, and I was thinking like, you know, I could spend that money on a nice dinner. I don't know, just anything that I, that I enjoy, a Netflix subscription. And uh, I'm also a homebody and I, I didn't know if I would want to go into an office. I mean, I would like the camaraderie of that, but I don't know if I'd want to go in it, you know, three times a week even. So it was sort of a no-brainer, especially because when my business sort of blew up, it was during the pandemic and I wasn't going to start an office then. So those are a lot of advantages. And just like with anything else, there's two sides of the coin. I would imagine there are a few drawbacks, although it does sound like there's mostly advantages to this type of setup. But, you know, again, somebody, if they're listening and they want to go into this this format, maybe driven by the pandemic and, you know, the pandemic's putting them in a position where they have to be more virtual. Or again, maybe somebody wants to start a business right at the outset and they're thinking, you know, I, w- I want to do it this way. I want to tap into a global talent pool. I want to save money on real estate. And, and I don't really want to go into an office four days a week, five days a week. But again, there might be some drawbacks. And there's probably some things that you can't, either you can't do or maybe you can't do as often or do as well because of this scenario. What are a few of those? So communication is really tough. I'm not the best communicator. Like I, I know what my strengths are. I'm more of a big picture guy strategy. So when it comes to like actively managing people, that doesn't come naturally to me. And so when we're not in the same room, there can be some miscommunication. Um, so that's the biggest challenge. But it but it does work out, you know, if you hire the right people. I found them on indeed.com mostly. I mean it's it, it works, you know, that's the biggest site. I just I just put out some ads and I get a lot of people applying and I have to weed through them. But I found the the right people I think. And also Reddit, believe it or not, you know, one of my full-time employees I found on an SEO part of Reddit, and he turned out to be a great employee and and a good friend. And actually, one of my other full-time employees was a tour guide at Free Pittsburgh Walking Tours. So I just believe in hiring the right people, especially because like I was saying, a lot of people don't know how to do SEO. And so I don't even try to hire people who are SEO experts because I've had too many SEO experts come to me and not be experts. So I'll, I just train them myself. It's and better it, off to train them how you, wanna, how you want them to work and it's, it just works better that way. Yeah, as long as they have the capacity to learn and, and, the, and the willingness to learn, then that's all I need. I know one of the areas that you learned a lot of lessons is when you got your first clients. So when a person starts a brand new business, especially a service-based business, you want to get that revenue coming in. As you had mentioned, you make this transition. You want to get that revenue coming in. You want to get those first clients. Sometimes we take on clients maybe that we shouldn't take on or because we, we need the work. What were some of the lessons that you learned early on 
whether it's with pricing and and how to tackle that aspect of 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 the communication with the client or just the clients themselves what were some of the difficult positions you found yourself in when you were working with somebody in the very beginning and you and you were trying to figure that out and as you look back you probably think I probably wouldn't work with that type of client today. You know, I'm much more, you know, seasoned in terms of what I would do. But back then, this is kind of what I had to go through to get started. Yeah, I mean, I think everyone who does anything like what I do has to start out at the bottom. You kind of have to suffer with the with the bad clients, and that's just like uh, the rite of passage. And because who's gonna you're not going to find a Fortune 500 company to pay you as like a freelancer with no experience. So yeah, I, I did work for clients where I was paid very little. I did work where I ended up losing money, where you know they were they were kind of mean. You know they would send me crazy emails, nothing out of the ordinary. But I just really wanted to succeed, and so I just knew that there were better opportunities if I just got a good review because sometimes these these clients who I considered bad referred me to other people when when we were done and because they enjoyed their experience and and maybe those people weren't as bad. And so with SEO it's just all about setting the right expectations because SEO is something that takes a long time, results are not guaranteed, it's going to be a while before you even start to see results and it costs a lot of money and you don't know how it works. So there's a lot of like anxiety from clients, especially small businesses. And so setting the right expectations at the start is, is really important or else it'll, it'll bite you in the butt. Could you give us an example of a company you worked with at Paperbox SEO, somebody that came to you and really needed some help with the search rankings and you were not only able to help them with that, but it translated to other parts of the business, maybe besides getting great search results. They got more revenue. They were hitting growth targets. They were getting more profitable. Can you tell us about somebody you worked with uh, so we can get a, a picture of, of how things work with uh, the clients in your company? Yeah. Yeah. There was a client who came to me just to audit their current SEO company. Um, and they said, there's no chance we're going to hire you because we don't want you to just <laughs> trash talk our current company just to get us to hire you instead. And so I was like, okay. And their company was doing a bad job. And I, I told them and they said, okay, I know we said we're not going to hire you, but what if we did? Like, what could you do with this budget? And I said, I could do great things. You know, I could get you more. This was a law firm. And so I said, I can get you more cases. Um, I mean, I was more detailed than that. But, and so they became my biggest client and I worked really really hard for them for three months, you know, staying up late, waking up early just to get them results. And I was struggling to undo the bad work that their previous SEO provider had done. But eventually I broke through that wall and they like very quickly, they started showing up really high for like criminal defense lawyer keywords. And they started getting more business, more calls. And they eventually hired two more attorneys, full-time attorneys, because they were getting so much business. And I was really proud of that. I was happy for them. I liked them as people. And they took a risk on me. They were one of my early clients. And they paid more money than they probably had to. But it paid off for them. And so I'm, I think everyone's happy about that. 
So Russell, as we wrap up here, what words of advice do you have for other entrepreneurs who are listening to this? Uh, maybe again, somebody's listening to this and they want to leave the corporate world. They have some of the same issues you had and they, you know, they want to have the freedom to be able to, to design their own work, their own life. Uh, maybe they want to travel the world like you did or build a virtual team like you did. You worked in a couple of different industries too. You know, you've done some different things, you know, with Free Pittsburgh Walking Tours, tour company, totally different than than what you're doing at Paperbox SEO, although you used your skills to, to build that business. Or just it could just be just general business advice. What thoughts come to mind that you would like to share with somebody listening to this? I've seen a lot of people who have a passion try to start a business and then it not go well because they focus too much on the part of it they're passionate about and not the business part. So like if you like making candles, for example, you have to focus a lot on things that have nothing to do with candles if you want to succeed as a, as a candle making business. And I think people should realize that if, if they want to pursue their passion and start their own business, they have to know about like how to start a business. Uh, they have to know the principles. They have to learn online marketing unless they have the money to pay someone to do it. They have to learn about leases and and um, like wholesaling and you know a bunch of things. It depends on the industry. Yeah, the person's not going to just do whatever the craft is or whatever the activity is. They're going there's going to be all these other things that they have to know about in order to run a successful business. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and I see. A, a lot of people start those businesses because they're passionate about it, but then nobody comes and, and buys their product or uses their service because they're being outmarketed by another company or just like the business doesn't run that well for whatever reason. So that would be my advice is just be prepared to, to have to be a business person if you want to start a business. Russell, thank you so much for being on the podcast today. Really appreciate you coming on. Thank you for having me. Hey, everyone. I hope you enjoyed this episode. Please do me and the Pittsburgh small business community a huge favor by giving it a rating on your favorite podcast app. It really helps others to find the show so that we can continue to build our community. If you haven't subscribed yet, please do. And if you know someone who should be on the podcast or you'd like to connect with me, you can reach me at proprietorsofpittsburgh.com or at 412-336-8247. I'm Darren Volano, and this is the Proprietors of Pittsburgh Podcast. Take care.